All right, open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, and uh, does it need to be louder, Paula? Is that what's? Oh, okay. Paula is going to get more coffee cake. I think she wants. I think she wanted that announced, and so um, it's for Roy. I know that's what. He said that's what she says every day. It's for Roy. It's for Roy. Roy doesn't even work here, but that's what she says. So, All right. Um, Book of Isaiah. Listen, we just have two more Wednesdays before we break uh, for the holidays. And um, so we are, we are going to tackle the daunting task of covering Isaiah through Malachi in two weeks. All right? So um, hang on to your hat. Uh, the focus of the study, we have kind of said over and over, has been kind of the 30,000-foot airplane view, um, and you're going to sense that even more uh, this evening. We have covered so far uh, the first two sections of the Old Testament, the, the law, the Pentateuch, um, the, the Torah, and um, the historical books, uh, Joshua through Esther, and I guess we've actually divided this into three in the poetic books, Job through the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. Um, tonight we're going to cover what we call the major prophets. It would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, and of course Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, and then Ezekiel and Daniel. And then next week we will cover Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi all next week. It'll be about three minutes each, I think, something like that. And uh, you will all be experts on both the major and minor prophets by the time we are done. All right. Uh, as a disclaimer, this was Kyle's idea, so I'm blaming this on Kyle. But um, we're gonna we're gonna do it anyway. All right. Um, let me talk about prophets in general and um, understanding the function and the purpose of prophets in the Old Testament. First of all, there are kind of two categories um, that uh, they didn't give themselves these titles, but during the process of putting Scripture together, the canonization um, process, which was a few centuries after Christ, there, there came a distinction between the prophets, the writing prophets, and the non-writing prophets. Uh, for example, non-writing prophets would include prophets like Elijah and Elisha. They did not do any uh, writing that we have recorded, um, and they were known for what they did. We have some great stories about Elijah uh, climbing up on top of Mount Carmel and taking on the 450 prophets of Baal and, and uh, standing before Ahab and Jezebel, and uh, some great stories about Elisha when he uh, retrieve the, the, the lost axe head out of the water, and, and, and many, many stories. These would be considered the non-writing prophets. Uh, the writing prophets, however, uh, would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then um, Ezekiel, Daniel, and all of those minor prophets that we mentioned. These prophets are known more for what they said than what they did. So that's kind of the primary distinction. Nine writing prophets known for what they did, writing prophets known for what they said. Uh, the role of a prophet um, in the Old Covenant or in the Old Testament uh, was primarily to be a spokesperson for God. 
Uh, I know this is New Testament, but turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, it's a verse I always like to point out when we start talking about uh, prophets and the prophetic. Hebrews chapter 1, and look at verse 1. Um, Hebrews 1, 1, God who at various times and in diverse or various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So in the Old Covenant, God directed the lives of people. He spoke through the prophets, and the prophets were his spokespersons to the people of God. Now in the New Covenant, and that's what Hebrews is about, that is not God's primary way of speaking to us. Um, I think you have to be very careful today. When somebody wants to prophesy into your life and direct your life, um, you need to understand in the Old Covenant, he worked that way. In the New Covenant, he has spoken to us through his Son, through his Word, by his Spirit, and that is the primary way that God speaks in the New Covenant. However, in the Old, uh, prophets were spokespersons for God. They would announce God's will, and his intentions for his people. Um, Let me just give you an example. It's in your notes, Jeremiah chapter 1. And Jeremiah is rehearsing the call of God on his life. And he said, God speaks to Jeremiah and said, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart, notice this, and I appointed you as my prophet to the nations. O sovereign Lord, I said, I can't speak for you. I am too young. The Lord replied, don't say I'm too young, for you must go wherever I send you and say whatever I tell you. Don't be afraid of the people, for I will be with you. I will protect you. I, the Lord, have spoken. And then the Lord reached out and touched my mouth and said, look, I have put my words in your mouth. Today I appoint you to stand up against nations and kingdoms, Some you must uproot, some you must tear down and destroy and overthrow. Others you must build up and plant. So God specifically called Jeremiah, and he said to Jeremiah, I want you to announce my will and my intentions for my people. Jeremiah was called while he was still in his mother's womb. We will look at it in a few minutes, but Isaiah had a very specific call as well. It wasn't a call quite like this, but he too was called to go and speak. As a matter of fact, he was called to speak to the people of God, and he was even told ahead of time that they weren't going to listen to him. How about that for an assignment? God saying, I want you to speak, and I want you to keep on speaking. And by the way, they're not going to listen to a word you say, but keep right on speaking. That was the call that Isaiah received, and we'll uh, look at that briefly in just a moment. But they were to announce God's will and his intentions for his people. Thirdly, prophets would predict the future. They would project into the future, prophesying into the future. Isaiah 65, 25 would be just one example of that. Um, Very likely speaking about the millennial reign that is still yet to happen. But Isaiah speaks about the day that the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat hay like a cow, The snakes will eat dust. In those days, no one will be hurt or destroyed on my holy mountain. I, the Lord, have spoken. And so prophets had really three functions. 
Um, all of them, I guess, kind of flow out of the one. But they were spokespersons for God. They announced his will and his intention for the people. And they prophesied or they spoke about what would take place in the future. Now, because we are um, not going to go into the weeds, we're not, we're not even getting close to the weeds. We're not, even, um, we're not even getting close to the ground. But since we're not getting very close into the details, I want to share with you just a few things that, as you do even your own study of the prophets, some methods that might be helpful in studying and interpreting the message of the prophets. Uh, the, the prophetic books have a, an important message uh, but often they are misunderstood. Some people run away from them altogether because they're kind of clumsy to read, especially if you don't know the context. Let me share with you two or three things that might be helpful. Number one, it's always important to get to know the prophet. Who were they? Where were they from? Amos, for instance, was a shepherd. He was called right out of the field and and Uh, was called to prophesy. Others, Isaiah was in the court serving the king. And so they had many different backgrounds. Uh, Daniel was a, um, he was in Jerusalem and was exiled into Babylon. They all have different backgrounds. So try to understand who they are, where they came from, what their background might be. And then discover the, the, the uniqueness of their prophecy or each book. These are concerns about context. Who is the audience? Some of the prophets um, particularly spoke to the northern kingdom. And uh, they spoke before uh, the fall of Samaria. Some of the prophets spoke to the southern kingdom, Judah. And um, their involvement was primarily with Jerusalem and the Jews in the south. Others spoke to other nations. Um, Jonah preached to uh, Nineveh, or it was Assyria. Nineveh was the capital city. And and so they all had a different audience. So that's important to understand as well. Also, you want to look at what are the political and social issues and concerns of the day. Um, Some of the prophets spoke about the impending judgment that was coming when Babylon was going to destroy Jerusalem. Some of them spoke to the Jews who were already in exile in Jerusalem. So there's, there's many different backgrounds, which leads us into the third point, and that is, when was the book written? Um, it's especially important when you look at the prophets to the south. Um, some of them wrote about, hey, judgment is coming, and some wrote, hey, judgment has come, and uh, this is how you need to act now as exiles. So they all have kind of different contexts, and it's important to try uh, to unpack those as you're studying them as well. Ezekiel prophesied, and uh, he is prophesying to the people of God in exile, and one of his themes is how the glory of God was leaving the people of God. And he has this really uh, incredible picture of how the glory made its way out of the temple and it kind of went a piece at a time and finally the presence of God had left the temple altogether. But understanding uh, the backdrop of the prophets is also important. Now let me talk about just quickly two or three theological themes. There are many. Uh, I'm narrowing them down to, you know, I think you only have two in your notes. I'm going to give you a third, but um, some theological themes that show up 
often in the prophetic works. Uh, number one is all the prophets seem to speak against idolatry. They, they stood strong uh, in opposition of the worship of other gods other than Yahweh. Let me give you one example. Hosea chapter 1 and verse 1. When the Lord first began to speak to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute. By the way, that's a bad gig, right, if you get called to do that. Go and marry a prostitute. And, and I, I know this is, sounds kind of funny, but her name was Gomer, all right? And that's like adding insult to injury, isn't it? So go and marry a prostitute so that her children, some of her children, will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. Hosea's message was a strong message against idolatry. And uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, had become very engaged in idol worship. And Hosea, um, Hosea and Ezekiel are two, and we'll talk about Ezekiel in a few minutes, uh, two of the prophets that, that they sometimes were called to actually act out their prophecies. And in this case, he was told to marry uh, this prostitute so that he could act out for Israel what unfaithfulness looked like and what the grace of God to the unfaithful wife looked like. And so Ezekiel also was called to do some pretty strange things in acting out the prophetic word of God. But many of the prophets spoke, Isaiah spoke strongly against idolatry. That was one of the main underlying themes of of the prophetic books. Secondly, um, there was a demand for justice and righteousness in a community that laid claim to being the chosen people. God's people were all proud of their covenant and their laws, and they were the chosen people, and yet they treated one another with horrible injustice, and they mistreated the poor. They they, they mistreated those that were uh, stuck in the cycle of poverty. They mistreated the widows and the orphans. And so there was this message, very strong prophetic word um, against injustice. One example, Amos five twenty one, And listen to what God says, strong word. I hate all your show and your pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all of your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flow, flood of justice and an endless river of righteous living. That, by the way, um, still speaks well to the church today. God's not interested in all of our religiosity and all of our super spirituality if we're not even living godly lives and treating one another as we are to treat one another. This is a strong prophetic word of, uh, from Amos about the hypocrisy uh, of God's people. Uh, you've heard me talk about this on Sunday morning, but in the book of Jeremiah, what the, the Jews were doing, they were living ungodly lives all week long, and then they were showing up on the Sabbath in the temple, and they were saying, look, we're at the temple of the Lord, we're at the temple of the Lord, like, look at us, we're all spiritual, and yet they were living ungodly lives. And God sees right through the hypocrisy. He did then, he does now, 
and he's looking not so much for outward, um, just like the Pharisees, the outside of the cup looking all shiny and nice, but the inward is corrupt. That was one of the strong messages of the prophets. A third one, it's not in your notes, but um, also one of the theological themes was the promise of hope and restoration. Turn um, to Joel chapter 2. This is one of my uh, favorite passages, Joel chapter 2. And uh, look at verse 25, Joel 2 and verse 25. And this is after a very strong word from Joel. But in Joel 2, 25, then God promises, so I will restore the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust. My great army which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. The young men shall see visions, and on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire, pillars of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there was this prophetic word of hope and restoration. Also turn to Zephaniah Three. It's another one that's not in your notes, but Zephaniah chapter 3, um, and look at verse number uh, 17. One of, also a great passage, Zephaniah three seventeen about hope and restoration. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. This is a great verse. He will rejoice over you with singing or with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That is, a, that is a powerful word to think that the God who will judge us in our hypocrisy will also restore us and quiet us with his love and rejoice over us with singing. We always think about us singing to him, but he loves us so much that he rejoices over us with singing. And that's, that's from the mouth of a prophet. So, there also was the message of hope and restoration that came from the prophets. Now let's uh, look for a few moments at the specific major prophets is what we call them. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah now. We're going to take a few minutes. Any questions about just a, a quick overview of the Old Testament prophetic in general? Any comments, questions? Insights, yeah, Isa. Uh huh. No, and so was um, Deborah was a judge, but Deborah prophesied, so um, they would be considered non-writing, yeah, as well, absolutely. And there were several, several non-writing male and female prophets that that showed lo- actually lots of very obscure prophets that only spoke one or two prophecies in the Old Testament. So lots of non-writing ones. Okay, anybody else? Any other questions?
Okay, let's look at Isaiah for just a few minutes, and I just want to give you a general overview of the book. Obviously, the author, we would say, is Isaiah. Uh, verse number one says that. Uh, there are, these are the visions that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So Judah and Jerusalem primarily speaks about his ministry to the south. That would be the southern kingdom. Now, there are, um, it was really popular, I don't know, maybe 100 years ago or so, and, and a little bit further back than that, to suggest that Isaiah was actually, had at least two or three authors. There are those who subscribe to the dual, the Deutero-Isaiah theory, and I, I guess it would be called the Trito-Isaiah theory. Um, and, and one of the reasons is because there was a strong move to reject um, prophecy that could actually see into the future. That bothered some liberal scholars that thought, now wait a minute, um, I mean, he actually calls out the name Cyrus, and he called out that name before Cyrus was even born. And then when Cyrus actually happened, they would say, well, that couldn't happen. So it's kind of a, a, a move to deny the ability to actually predict the future. Um, but actually, um, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and there's lots of reason to this, but this actually kind of cemented the, um, the theory that Isaiah was, in fact, all one unit written by one man, and that would be the Isaiah, the son of Amos, um, that we read about in verse 1. His name uh, means the Lord is salvation. He actually uses the word salvation three times um, more than any other Old Testament or all the other Old Testament prophets combined. It's kind of an interesting fact since that's what his name means. Um, some have even seen in it, and they consider it the gospel uh, of the Old Testament. It, it really, you can break it down very easily, the first 39 chapters and the second 27 chapters make up the 66 chapters of Isaiah, and our Bible that we have has 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, not saying that was planned because the chapters were added later, So, but it just kind of lays out that way, and so for that reason, some people consider it the gospel of the Old Testament. It was written probably around 700 B.C., and um, Isaiah's ministry was active through the reign of four different kings, King Uzziah, uh, King Jotham, King Ahaz, and um, King Hezekiah. Now his call, go to chapter 6, if you would, Isaiah 6. This is the call that Isaiah received. And uh, this is really when his ministry began. In the year, look at 6.1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And he, one cried to another and said, Holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. By the way, note verse 5. I'll come back to it in just a moment. But the first line, woe is me. I'll talk about that in just a moment. And then verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand in his hand a live coal. He'd taken it from tongs off the altar, touched my mouth, and with it he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return and be healed. So Isaiah's call is one that does not offer a lot of hope because people are going to reject his message. Um, but that is, that is his call, and it came during the reign of King Uzziah. Um, Isaiah is also one of the three books of the Old Testament that is most quoted in the New Testament. The other two are Deuteronomy and the Psalms, and uh, Isaiah is third in rank of most often Old Testament books quoted in the New. The purpose of Isaiah as a whole was to warn Judah, the southern kingdom, and other nations that God's judgment was coming on their sins. Um, Secondly, he wanted to prophesy that there would be a group, even though God was going to judge the people, there would be a remnant that would return after the captivity. Remember this, um, just for the sake of uh, reminder, 586 B.C. is when Babylon, um, their final siege into Jerusalem, that was Nebuchadnezzar. The first one was in 605. It was really a three-pronged siege. But the final one was in 586 B.C., and they carried the Jews to Babylon And they put them there in exile. When we talk about the exile, this is the period of time we're talking about after Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. They tore down uh, the temple. They they tore down the walls around the city that Nehemiah will later rebuild. But part of what Isaiah did, not only did he warn about the judgment to come, he's prophesying around 700 B.C., so we're talking about about 114 years before this happens. But he also prophesies that there would be a remnant that would return to Jerusalem. And that, by the way, is when he calls out Cyrus and says, Cyrus, the king who would be the Persian king, Cyrus is going to actually be the one to allow Israel to come back. And it was indeed, you can read it in Ezra and Nehemiah, that Cyrus does, in fact, in about 536 BC, he allows a remnant to return to Jerusalem. So Isaiah warns about the judgment, prophesies that there will be a remnant And he also prophesies, and this is kind of the futuristic, he also prophesies that God would send a Messiah that would be a Savior to all the nations. Now, you may have heard this before. Um, One of the things about prophets of the Old Testament, and this is just a a human illustration, so it's not um, not without... and you have no idea what I just drew. Just trust me, these are mountains. Don't they look like the prettiest mountains you've ever seen? And some say that prophets um, saw the mountaintops. They kind of saw the big picture. And, And so, hence, sometimes the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus 
are kind of a little hard to unpack in the prophetic writing because they saw the, the larger plan of God, but they often did not talk about the valleys. It was as if they were standing up here speaking for God and shooting across and giving the big picture. So that gives us a little um, help in understanding why um, sometimes it seems like almost the, the advent and the second return of Christ almost seem to meld together in, in the prophetic writing. Um, turn to First Peter chapter 1. It's a text I like to use when we're talking about the prophets. Because oftentimes people will ask, did they know what they were talking about? Did they know who they were talking about when they're prophesying? And um, the fact of the matter is they did not. And Scripture says they did not. Look at First Peter chapter 1. And um, look at verse number 10, I think is where we want to start. Yes, First um, Peter 1, of this salvation, this is verse 10, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Now remember, Peter's writing uh, probably around, I'm sorry, uh, probably around 50, uh, I'm just, that's off the top of my head, around 50 A.D., maybe a little bit later and this is A.D. now. So he's talking about the prophets. Of this salvation, the prophets, including Isaiah, he's one of the main ones, have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which have now been retorted, reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which the angels desire to look into. In other words, the only thing the prophets knew was we're talking about a time when it's going to be other people. It's not us. We are prophesying about something in the future. We know it's not for us. It is for another people down the road. Peter verifies that the prophets did not understand exactly who or when um, they were talking about. So they prophesied that God would send a Messiah. We'll look at that prophecy a little bit more specifically in just a moment. Um, the message of Isaiah, and, and in the midst of judgment, Isaiah prophesied that God would bring hope and deliverance and mercy and love. Let's kind of take a quick little um, outline review of Isaiah. Um, the first 35 chapters looked at as a lump would be considered prophecies of judgment. Uh, go to Isaiah chapter 1 and uh, look at verse 11. It's a picture of the rebellion of the southern kingdom. Now, keep in mind, this is 700 B.C. This is before Babylon destroys them. Okay, so he's warning them that this is going to happen. They're slipping into rebellion. And notice what he says in verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Saith the Lord, I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I don't lie in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come before me to appear before me, who's required this from your hand? To trample my courts. Don't bring any more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of the assemblies. I can't endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates 
They're trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Even though you may make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourself clean. Put away the evil before uh, the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. And then come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as wool. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. In other words, God is saying, Quit bringing the sacrifices to me. Get your heart right. You get your heart right, you can be cleansed. But you can pray till you're blue in the face. You can stretch your arms out. You can fast. You can kill animals. I'm not impressed with that because your hearts are not right. So it is a strong word of Judah's rebellion, their insincere worship, and their injustice. In chapters 2 through 5, um, It is a series of woes or oracles against Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah, then Judah as a whole nation, also against the north Israel and other nations. And and I want you just to, I I want to bring this to your attention. In chapter 5, there are six times that Isaiah points out the fault of someone else and pronounces woe on them. One example is in your notes, Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I think there are six of them in chapter 5, six woes. But I read to you, remember I said, keep in mind verse 5 of Isaiah 6, because what happens when Isaiah sees the Lord? When, when he's caught into God's presence and he sees the glory of God on the throne, what are the first words out of his mouth? Woe is me, because I am undone and I am unclean. There's a really important truth there. Uh, it kind of parallels the New Testament truth of Jesus. Before you go trying to work on the speck in brother or sister's eye, get the telephone pole out of your own. And Isaiah was very quick to see the fault of everyone else but when he measured himself not by everybody else but Jesus, all of a sudden he saw his own fault and his own iniquity, and he said, woe is me. It's really easy to find another person that we are as good as or better, and we can feel pretty good about ourselves, but when we compare ourselves to Jesus, uh, we all have, you would agree with this, we all have work to do, right? Okay, when we compare ourselves to Christ. And that's kind of a lesson that we can extract from Isaiah's experience. So Isaiah 6 is his call. Isaiah 7 through 12, turn there. Um, These are two or three of the scriptures we're going to use in our series um, at Advent. But there are early prophecies of the Messiah. All of these you will be familiar with. Look at uh, chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, we'll talk about that. He says that to Ahaz. That'll be the first sermon I preach in the Advent series on December 1st. And we'll kind of unpack what that meant to Ahaz and what that means to us. But it was an early prophecy of the Messiah. Chapter 9 and verse 6, you'll know this one as well. Um, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. 
And then chapter 11 and verse 2, another um, prophecy, actually one and two of the Messiah. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Jesse was who? It was David's father. So uh, this the Messiah is going to come from that same root, from the lineage of David. There shall come a, a forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And so these are some of the early prophecies of the Messiah. Um, chapters 13 through 23, look at chapter 13. Uh, these are judgments on the nations. Look at verse 2 of chapter 13. Lift up a banner on the high mountain. Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I've called also my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation. And what begins, and by the way, in verse 1, this is an oracle against Babylon. And 13 through... um, 23 is God's prophetic judgment on the nations that surround. Chapters 24 through 27 of Isaiah uh, speak of the restoration that would ultimately come. Look at chapter 27 and uh, verse number 12. Um, Isaiah 27, 12, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will... um, Thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in that day. The great trumpet will be blown. They will come. We're about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcast in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in his holy mount in Jerusalem. By the way, that is, that is, a, that is a profound statement. Notice the nations that are ultimately going to come. Um, the people of Assyria, the people of Egypt are ultimately going to come. Every knee will bow, ultimately, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. And so there's this prophecy of restoration. Chapters 28 through 35, there are more prophecies of both woes and hope that is to come. And then in chapters 36 through 39, Things get a little different. It's not so much prophecies. There's two narratives, um, and they are um, narratives that have to do with Hezekiah, who was the king, chapter 36 through 39. And you can, these are fascinating chapters, actually, and you can compare these, 36 through 39, uh, to um, Second Chronicles, I believe. I don't have it in my notes. Second Kings. Um, you can compare these stories, um, but but it's Isaiah's uh, dialogue with King Hezekiah when um, Judah is in some really dire straits. It's a very interesting um, section of Scripture. That's Isaiah 36 through 39. And then um, the end of the book, chapters 40 through 66, are prophecies of salvation and hope. Uh, First of all, chapters uh, 40 through 48 speak of God's deliverance. Um, Chapters 49 through 57 focus in on God's deliverer. Go to chapter 53. You're very familiar with this text, chapter 53. 
and uh, look at verse number 3, I believe, 53 and verse 3. Actually, go to verse 1. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, this is the Deliverer, the Messiah, shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. By the way, Jesus was born after 400 years of no prophetic word from Malachi to Matthew. It was really a dry spiritual time. And out of that dry ground, the Messiah comes as a root out of dry ground. He has no former comeliness. When we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. He's borne our sorrows, our, our griefs carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That's exactly what the Jews thought. He's being punished for his blasphemy. That's how Isaiah says the Jews are going to see him as, as being judged by God. Um, but he was wounded for our transgressions, Isaiah says, and bruised for our iniquities. Chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. That's a prophetic word 700 years before Christ. It's a prophetic word of the deliverer. And um, so God's deliverance is discussed 40 through 48. His deliverer is discussed in 49 through 57. Um, The suffering servant, we talked about that when we studied the book of Isaiah. And then again, uh, the, the end of the book ends with a picture again of God's deliverance, 58 through 66. That's um, Isaiah in a nutshell. Um, a really tidy little nutshell. We just put Isaiah in. Any comments, questions, insights? Anybody? All right. Jeremiah. Uh, he is the author. He's also known as the weeping prophet. Um, he wrote the book of Lamentations, which means to lament, to weep. Um, the, the whole book of Lamentations is Jeremiah walking through the city of Jerusalem, lamenting over the city after it had been destroyed by the Babylonians, lamenting over um, the horrific condition that it was left in. Um, Jeremiah's life was interesting. It was um, a lonely life, full of sorrow. He's told not to marry, not to have children, because... Uh, The children born in Jerusalem would be destroyed. It would be a horrible life. So he lived his life uh, without that companionship. Uh, He describes his own tears in chapter 9 and verse 1. If only my head were a pool of water and my eyes a fountain of tears, I would weep day and night for all my people who have been slaughtered. He has faithful warnings of the judgment that is to come, but but they didn't listen to him. It just alienated him further. When he stood up and said, listen, folks, we're going to be judged, they pushed him aside. They hated him. They wanted to kill him. He was, in fact, beaten and imprisoned. Chapter 20, uh, verses 1 and 2. Uh, And again, in chapter 37, verse 15, they were furious with Jeremiah. They had him flogged and imprisoned in the house of Jonathan, the secretary. Remember the... um, the parable that we talked about a few weeks ago on Sunday morning, the parable of the landowner, and uh, he owned the land, and and uh, he sent one of his servants to collect, and uh, they beat him, and they flogged him, sent him away, and 
So he sent another servant, and same thing happened. He finally said, I'll send my son. Surely they'll treat him well, and they did, and they killed him. Um, and Jesus, the Pharisees knew what he was talking about. He was talking about them. They, they beat the prophets who tried to warn them. And then when the son came, they crucified him. This is exactly the kind of thing that happened to Old Testament prophets who were simply speaking the word of the Lord and warning them, uh, God's people, that judgment was, was to come. Uh, he was actually in chapter 38 lowered into a well, and uh, they, they sunk him down into the mud. After Jerusalem fell, uh, they forced him to flee to Egypt uh, against God's mandate. And uh, tradition states that he continued to prophesy in Egypt until he was stoned to death. Uh, Jeremiah, his call came around 626 B.C. We're talking about, um, it'd be about 21 years, I already erased that, about 21 years from the first Babylonian siege and about 40 years from the final one. So he, he's, he's got called and he's got about 40 years to warn them. And he does that. Um, he wrote this book because of the divine mandate. Look at Jeremiah 36. Jeremiah 36 and verse number 1. Uh, came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, who was the king of Judah, that the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah. Even to this day it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them, that every one may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words that the Lord, which of the of the Lord, which he had spoken to him. So God mandated uh, the writing of these prophecies. Um, I had you turn there, but it was actually in your notes. I'm sorry about that. This occurred sometime around 605 B.C. Uh, King Jehoiakim actually burned the first scroll, um, but God instructed Jeremiah and Baruch in chapter 36, verses 27 through 32, to actually make a second one. So after it all got burned, God said, I want you to write down again what I said to you. And uh, Baruch is believed to have put the book that we have in its final form after the death of Jeremiah. So what was the purpose of Jeremiah? Number one, uh, he was giving the theological explanation for why Jerusalem was coming down. They had sinned. They had committed idolatry. They had rejected and been disobedient to God, um, and they would go into exile. But secondly, it wasn't just a message of judgment. It was also an encouragement to maintain hope because God ultimately was going to restore them. Jeremiah is the one that talks about the new covenant where God is going to put the word on their hearts and, 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 and bur- give them a new heart and then put the covenant on their hearts. So he gave a word of warning, but he also gave encouragement about restoration. So as we quickly break down, Jeremiah begins in chapter 1 with his call and his commission. Um, notice verse 10. Um, he, he is called... Um, to uproot some 
tear down some, destroy some, overthrow. I mean, again, what a call. Jeremiah, I'm calling you to tear some things down, to uproot some things, to destroy some things, to overthrow some things. But then others you're going to build up and plant. So it's kind of the twofold call of warning and judgment and uh, rebuilding and hope. Uh, he was their last prophet, the last prophet to Judah in their last 40 years prior to exile. Um, Jeremiah witnessed three different Babylonian invasions. He saw the city walls being torn down, the temple destroyed, the Jews killed, and many carried away to Babylon. Chapters 2 through 33 are his prophecies to Judah. They're prophecies about judgment. Look at chapter 2 and verse 13. This kind of sums up, um, sums up the sin of Judah. Look at this. It's a Again, a passage that still speaks today pretty powerfully. My people, look at chapter 2, verse 13. Um, 2.13, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, God says, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So not only did they reject Yahweh, but they created their own gods that they were going to serve. That is, the su- that, that is a summary of the sin of, um, of Judah. And I would say it's the summary of the sin of America, if we really are honest. We've rejected Jesus, and we've kind of come up with our own way, our own thing that we're going to worship, our own gods that we're going to serve. And so um, this is a, a word that still speaks to us today. Then in chapters 30 through 33 are the prophecies about restoration. This is where he talks about the new covenant. I look on the top of page 6. The day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah, not like the one I made with their ancestors uh, when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that. This is the new covenant I will make. Uh, I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So it's a, a, a prophecy of restoration that was to come. Chapters 34 and 35, Jeremiah describes his role as the watchman. He prophesies to Zedekiah, who was the puppet king at that point, about the captivity that was to come. Um, there's also the lesson of the Rechabites who obeyed God, and God blessed them because of their obedience. And then in chapters 36 through 38, I already told you about that. The scrolls are burned. Uh, Look at chapter 36, verse 23. It's in your notes. Each time um, Jehudi finished reading three or four columns, the king took a knife and he cut that section off the scroll and he threw it into the fire. So this, this, what Baruch had written down, the prophecies of Jeremiah, he watches as the king destroys them. But then they are uh, rewritten later. Chapters 39 is the fulfillment of prophecies concerning Jerusalem's fall. That's when it actually happens. And then 40 through 45 describe Jeremiah's ministry after the fall of Jerusalem. And then in 46 through 51, his prophecies to the nations. 52 was just an epilogue and historical appendix of Jerusalem's fall. But again, Jeremiah, like other prophets, affirms not only judgment, but God's grace in God's mercy. He also wrote Lamentations on the top of page 7. 
Uh, These are poems conveying his deep sadness. Uh, Chapter 1 is a poem about the destruction of Jerusalem. Chapter 2 is a poem about God's anger and Jerusalem's uh, sorrow. Uh, Chapter 3 is God's suffering people. But in the midst of chapter 3 is that that passage of hope when um, something happens and triggers um, Jeremiah when he says, but therefore I, I hope in God it's because of his mercies that we're not totally consumed. Um, your mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. In the midst of a mess, he still had the wherewithal to say, you know what? It could even be worse than this. God could have totally wiped this out, but his mercy has restored us. Chapter 4 is a poem about Jerusalem's past, present, and future. And chapter 5 is a prayer restoration. Book of Ezekiel, any comments about Jeremiah? Any comments, questions? Let me uh, give you a quick overview then of Ezekiel. Probably one of the strangest books, to be honest. Um, One of the strangest prophecies. Um, His name means God strengthens. He is both a prophet and a priest. Uh, He lived in Jerusalem until he was 25, and he was taken, Ezekiel was taken captive to Babylon. You you remember who else was? Daniel was. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they were taken captive to Babylon, but so was Ezekiel. Uh, Because of his priestly role, his prophecies emphasized the temple and worship patterns and attitudes. That's because he was a priest. As a prophet, he was often called to deliver messages about the people's failure uh, to abide in the covenant with God. That was his strong message. You failed to keep covenant with God. And he was called to act out, as I mentioned, many of the prophecies. Turn to chapter 4. Let me give you just one example. If you've not read Ezekiel, this will um, give you a taste of the kinds of things that uh, Ezekiel was called to do. Um, You also look at verse 1. Son of man, take a clay tablet, lay it before you, and portray on it a city, Jerusalem. Lay siege against it, build a siege wall against it, and heap up a mound against it, set camps against it also, and place battering rams against it all around. Moreover, take for you an iron plate and set it as an iron wall, Between you and the city, set your face against it, and it shall be besieged. And you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Look at verse 4. Lie also on your left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days, 390 days, so you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you have completed, turn over, lie again on your right side, and then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have laid on you a day for each year. So he is called to act out this very bizarre prophecy where he lays on his left side to portray God's judgment against Israel and on his right side to portray God's judgment against Judah. Um, He also acts out a prophecy in 5, chapter 12, and chapter 24. He's referred to as the Son of Man 90 times. He has shown visions of future judgments and other events that are to come. 
There are times that, like John on the island of Patmos, the Spirit of the Lord carries him away into another place uh, where he prophesies. Um, He prophesied for about 22 years, 593 to 571. He would be a prophet during the exile while they were actually in Babylon. And again, his purpose was to proclaim God's judgment on Judah and on the nations, but also to encourage the captives with prophecies of the future glory of God's kingdom and affirming to them that God is sovereign. One of the things that, that Ezekiel does, he, he has that prophecy where you see the um, glory of God leaving the temple, but that's not the end of the story. He also speaks of when the glory of God returns to the temple. It's Ezekiel's prophecy. Remember the Valley of Dry Bones? And they're just a bunch of dry bones. And, and uh, God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And you remember what Ezekiel said? God, only you know if they can live. And uh, God said, yeah, they can. And he, he said, I want you to prophesy to them. And then the bones came together. And then I want you to prophesy to the wind. And the wind came and the bones um, were, were raised up. And it was an exceeding great army, a picture of God restoring Israel, that there is restoration to come. So that Ezekiel is not just a um, down judgment prophet. He also speaks of restoration that was to come. So again, a quick outline. His call um, is in chapter 1 through 3. Um, look at, uh, it's in your notes, chapter 2, 1 through 5. Stand up, son of man. I want to speak to you. And the Spirit came into me as he spoke, and he set me on my feet, and I listened carefully to his words. Son of man, he said, I'm sending you to the nation of Israel, a nation, a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been rebelling against me this very day. They're stubborn and hard-hearted people. But I'm sending you to say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen to you or refuse to listen, uh, for remember they are rebels, at least they will know that they have had a prophet among them. Chapters 4 through 24, he prophesies judgment, the departing of the glory. Chapters 25 through 32, he prophesies against other nations. Uh, Chapters 33 through 48, he prophesies the return of God's glory and the restoration of God's people. This restoration begins with a call from the shepherds, spiritual shepherds, to repent uh, for taking care of themselves but not caring for the people. Um, And there is this underlying theme, as Jesus spoke about in John 10, that um, he would be their chief shepherd. The restoration is prophesied, as I mentioned, through the Valley of Dry Bones and the return of God's glory to the temple, which happens in Ezra's day um, and will happen again in the millennial reign and is happening even in reality um, with Christ over his church today. Ultimately, Ezekiel says that God is sovereign. He will rule and reign in his future uh, in times or eschatological reign. In that time, we will know perfect harmony and peace. And the final prophet, I'll give it to you just very quickly, is Daniel. Final writing major prophet. Daniel is the author. Um, He names himself in chapter 9 and verse 2. He is also a prophet of the exile. While they are in Babylon, um, he is contemporaries of Shadrach, 
Meshach, Abednego. Um, His date of his prophecy spans from the first invasion of Nebuchadnezzar in 605 to the third year of Cyrus, which is 536 B.C. Daniel was taken captive in 605. He lived through the end of the 70 years of captivity. Uh, Later in life, he worked as an official in the Persian government. Daniel 7 through 12 is autobiographical. He relates visions and dreams and experiences that happen in the later part of his life. And really, Daniel 7 through 12 is apocalyptic. It it speaks to uh, end times, uh, at least partially to end times happenings. The purpose of Daniel is to encourage the people that their captivity would end and the future would be brighter. Interestingly, Daniel does not call on them to repent. Rather, he emphasized being faithful um, to God in a foreign land. Chapters 3 and 6. Remember, chapter 6 is that story when um, the king makes a decree that nobody's supposed to pray. And what does Daniel do? He continues to pray three times a day. He's showing them what it looks like to be faithful in, in a world that is pushing against God. And so his message is that they're already... They're already captive. Um, There seems to be repentance already happening. He's calling on them now to be faithful until the time of restoration. Um, So that is his message. Uh, The main theme is the divine sovereignty over all of the nations. Chapters 1 through 6 talk about kingdoms that were in existence during Daniel's time. And chapters 7 through 12 talk about kingdoms that will come after Daniel's time sometime in the future. So the message of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1 is the historical setting, the beginning of the exile. Chapters 2 through 7 are Daniel's messages about the nations. There's Nebuchadnezzar's uh, vision of the huge statue, uh, the gold image and the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Um, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great tall tree. Belshazzar's feast, remember that one, chapter 5, the handwriting on the wall, many, many tekel yufarsin, which means God has weighed your kingdom in the balances and you're found wanting, and tonight your kingdom, uh, Babylon, is going to be turned over the Medes and the Persians, which is exactly what happened, and then we bring in Cyrus and the Persians and Ezra and Nehemiah, and it all fits together there. Chapter 6 is the decree of Darius, Daniel being thrown into lion's den, but protected And then we have Daniel's dream of the four beasts, the kingdom of heaven and the eternal kingdom uh, in chapter 7. And then chapters 8 through 12, Daniel's messages about Israel um, are in 8 through 12. Ultimately, Daniel tells us that many kingdoms will come and go, but the kingdom of the Son of God and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will reign eternally, and it is the only kingdom that is worthy of our devotion. Are you as tired as I am? (laughs) Probably so. Any any comments, questions? I I wanted to at least give you some hangers to study those books on. And those notes will at least give you general outlines and you can delve into them a little bit more. Next year, we are going to handle the Wednesday study a little bit different and take smaller units as we study. But any, any comments or questions?